2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Nathan Fielder goes even fuller cringe edition. It's Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. On today's show, Nathan Fielder, the reality TV postmodernist maestro, creator of Nathan for You and the Rehearsal, returns with The Curse. This one is a scripted show about a couple creating an HGTV show. In an impoverished New Mexico town. Its 10 episodes are on Showtime. And then The Holdovers, it's the new movie from director Alexander Payne. It stars Paul Giamatti as a prep school Latin teacher who must chaperone The Holdovers, the boys with nowhere to go over the holiday, one Christmas break in 1970. And finally, the great New York Times book critic Dwight Garner joins us to discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen, on eating, reading about eating, and eating while reading. But first, I'm joined by Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
3: Hey, Steven.
2: Everyone good? We're going to make a show?
4: Let's
3: do it. I'm ready.
2: Let's do it. All right. Well, the TV show The Curse is co-created by and co-stars Nathan Fielder. His previous shows were I mean, they're very hard to describe quickly. Let's call them prank reality shows with a very heavy meta vibe. This one, though, is scripted. Fielder plays Asher Siegel, a would-be real estate developer and aspiring do-gooder looking to invest in a small town outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. His wife and partner in the venture is Whitney. She's played by Emma Stone. And in effect, together, what they want to do is gentrify the town of Española, but in a mindful and socially conscious way to do well, do good, and along the way to make an HGTV show called Flipanthropy. The show also stars its co-creator, Benny Safty, as their dirtbag producer. In the clip we're about to hear, here's a moment after... A disastrous TV interview where Fielder's character goes off on a local reporter when she brings up his wife, played by Emma Stone, her slumlord parents. Let's listen. You said nothing about your
4: parents when I reached out to her. It was awful. You were so aggressive that we can't, we can't have that air. What do you say? It's
2: like you tell a reporter not to air something and that. That becomes the story. That becomes part of it.
1: There's there's nothing on Google that ties me to them. And now this is the first thing that's going to come up. We have nothing to do with their business.
2: All right, Julia. Well, uh, at one point, one of the two, I can't remember. I think it's Fielder's character says, we really believe that gentrification doesn't have to be a game of winners and losers. A version of that mantra is said over and over and over again by this apparently loathsome couple what do you make of the satire that this show is uh, aspiring to be?
4: Uh, <laughs> it's hard to describe and hard to watch and not unadmirable, but I think I spent a lot of my time watching it trying to figure out what to make of the cringery of it. I mean, it's I really if you're interested in cringe comedy at all, it's worth watching because it makes Curb Your Enthusiasm look like a gingham-checked basket full of fluffy puppies. Like, (laughs) you're like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, that lovable Brentwood curmudgeon, you know. Like, these people are despicable, obtuse about their own despicability, and Emma Stone's performance in particular is dialed in so precisely, and is sort of tragic and fascinating. It's fascinating to watch within the context of the show. And it's also fascinating to think, what is Emma Stone doing on this show that you described as a Paramount sh- show, Steve? But in the course of watching it, I encountered like four different descriptions. Or so you described it as a Showtime show. But I'd, I encountered like four different descriptions of what the hell Showtime even is anymore, including the Paramount app with Showtime was one of them. <laughs> so like there's a bit of a huh? Here, and (laughs) even though I found myself admiring the concept that extreme cringe is the only way to tackle America's housing problems, income inequality, racial appropriation, and a whole host of other subjects that this show seeks to address... It's like a little self-indulgent and baggy. These episodes are so long. They're like 50 to 60 minutes long. And um, some of the length is letting the awkwardness hang, but some of the length is like a self-indulgent lack of discipline. Like, I wish this was a brisk 40. And I think if it were, it could maybe be quite interesting. And I I can't say that I loved it. Dana, what did uh, what'd you make of it?
3: Yeah, Julia, I agree with you on the length, certainly. I mean, I think I say that about practically every show we talk about, that it could be more brisk. And I keep reading in coverage of this show, of which only two hours have aired, that there's a very interesting and meaty, it was described as meaty in one article, final twist at the end, and that the last episode does a lot of unexpected things. And I'm curious to see what those things are, but I'm not sure I'm willing to put in the slog of time to get to the ending to see what it is. So that's not a great vote for the show. But I will say that the mood, I mean, I see the comparison to, to Cringe. Comedy comedy things like Curb Your Enthusiasm or maybe even Veep or something like that, right? I mean, the kind of show where a purportedly well-meaning white liberals make themselves look horrible in various social situations. I see that comparison, but I think that this, this show is up to something that's a little bit different in tone in that it's almost it has almost a horror element the music which neither of you have mentioned but i'm sure you noticed it right is is straight out of some kind of mm. i don't know some kind of eerie avant-garde psychological thriller it's this really weird sort of you know f- f- smeary atonal sound that gets laid over these very banal scenes of people talking in parking lots <laughs> in new mexico and so and the curse of the title without spoiling anything is has a s- possibly supernatural element it is an actual curse placed on these loathsome characters by another character in the pilot. So I am curious how that plays out and how that will be developed throughout the show. Not totally sure that I will stick with it for that reason.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a tough sell, right? These sort of, these hour-long episodes that are, you know, you say baggy, uh, Julia. I, I kind of wrote flaccid in my notebook. I mean, there's a slackness and, an, and a kind of airy airlessness to them. At moments, there's very little pace or briskness to the show to begin with. And to sit through nine of those to get to a meaty twist in the 10th strikes me as a pretty huge ask. The thing that would prevent me from doing that isn't its oddity of tone or pacing. It's really that I do not feel in the least that these are worthy objects of satire. The, The show in... It's metaness makes it seem superficially cutting edge, but the satire is in its way 10 years at least out of date. I mean, do-gooder yuppies who are actually self-serving and fame famished? that type has been dominant in American culture since the 1980s and self-aware and excusing itself through self-awareness and irony and metaness since the mid-90s. I In 2023, I don't really feel the need to go back to that well. I know such people. They're disgusting, right? And the second thing is slightly more up-to-date is the observation that reality TV is built on nothing but narcissism and lies. But there was a moment where I sort of said to my television out loud, does Nathan Fielder not know that Donald Trump was president? I mean, we've kind of, we've gone so far through the looking glass, right? Where reality and unreality fully inverted at the level of power, at the top, right, and for multiple years, and may repeat itself. I, this is, to me, it's like oddly old-fashioned. And Julia, you know, as Sam Adams pointed out in his astute essay on this show, in all three of his shows, this one, Nathan for you, and uh, the rehearsal, there's kind of a pattern, which is that that for all three shows, there's a central preoccupation by which attempting to help others goes horribly awry. And that's where I raise an eyebrow. The sort of punchline is that, no, 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 Nathan Fielder says, I'm ultimately the joke. I'm so incapable of respecting the needs and desires and inner lives of others that my attempts to help them go wrong over and over and over again. And um, I find it, it's not just that I'm cringing. I see something self-serving in this kind of deadpan monster's you know, attempt to quote unquote help others. And here he's gone meta meta. He's saying, oh, no, no, no. I always knew. Now he's doing a scripted show about him as a deadpan monster, you know, trying to help others, but really actually only being a self-serving jerk. It's like, it doesn't matter how many more layers of self-awareness you add to it. The initial impulse is still monstrous.
4: Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I admire and respect Nathan Fielder. I think he's so unusual as a talent and a brain. And I am glad that he makes the things he makes because they feel like a swath of vinegar laid across the culture. And I also didn't feel, I did not feel that this portrayal of reality TV was tired. Like, yes, 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 Donald Trump. Yes, there was that great show, Unreal, that turned into a not great show, Unreal. But I actually think we haven't had enough Scripted depictions of the performed examinations of or, or fictional depictions of performed selfhood, and to combine performed selfhood with kind of housing and HHEV is great. That's new terrain, and it's a rich terrain. It's interesting terrain. I also really enjoyed the aesthetic of the show, which like helps you understand the the kind of Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul universes portrayal of New Mexico which is sort of pretending that it's showing you the gritty reality of New Mexico, but every single fucking shot could be hung on the wall as a painting of like the gorgeous decrepitude of the strip mall. And then this show is just like, no, the strip mall ugly. Like this is ugly and broken down. And um, I, I, Kind of thought the anti- aesthetic of it was interesting as well. so I, I don't I don't have the same feeling that the underlying impulse is cruelty, which it sounds like is what you're saying, Steve. It's like nihilist, I think, a little bit about humankind, which is not my jam, but in a way that I don't think comes from a place of cruelty. And in some way, the the intentional obtuseness of his characters, points up that everyone else is a little bit more human.
3: Can I say something I really admire about the show, even though I agree with Julia's remarks on its bagginess and to some degree on Steve's remarks about Nathan Fielder, though, I don't know his other shows well enough. I mean, I know his reputation. I've read more about him than I've watched of him. And I do think he's an interesting talent, but I feel no desire to watch any of his shows to the end. So I don't know what that says. But I will say that I think the performances in this are quite extraordinary. All three of the main performances, Emma Stone playing the kind of character that she doesn't, often play. Somebody who is truly unlikable and sort of has an empty soul, but I don't think is without, you know, there's a a sympathy that you feel for her character because she conveys this character's desperate neediness to be liked and approved of and her absolute uh, imperviousness to any negative feelings about herself, which is a a very unflattering note to play and she does it extremely well. Nathan Fielder doing scripted TV for the first time, right? I mean, he is usually literally playing himself and uh, even if this character is closely based on that, he is still reading dialogue and he does it really well. Like if I did not know that he had a history as this reality TV creator and thought he was just an actor playing a role, I would really have praised this performance. And Benny Safdie, who in general, I find kind of a piece of stunt casting when he's in movies, including in Oppenheimer, which he was just recently in. And, you know, in the movies that he makes with his brother, Josh Safdie, he was also in the, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret this year. And I always sort of think, oh, there's Benny (laughs) Safdie saying stuff. And I actually didn't recognize him in this role. He looks very different. He sounds very different. And he plays again, somebody extremely unlikable and I was surprised to realize about halfway into the pilot, wait, there's Benny Safdie. So I will say that this is worth watching as a kind of, I think, masterclass in playing extremely unsympathetic characters in a way that still compels the audience's attention.
2: Okay, well, email us and tell us what you think. I'm a pretty hard thumbs down, but it looks like I'm in the minority. It's The Curse. It's on nominally on Showtime. You have to take sinuous byways to get there, or at least I did. Uh, I got it via Hulu. Um, I'm sure you'll find it. All right, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business atypically. Julia, you're going to walk us through it. What do we have?
4: Honored, I'm sure. Today, we are taking the sad occasion of the demise of Jezebel to talk through our own relationship with women's media as consumers, as adjacent consumers. And in our segment, Dana will reveal what style tip from Seventeen Magazine she learned decades ago and still employs. So... Sign right up.
2: All right, well, Alexander Payne, he's the director who brought us Citizen Ruth, Election, Sideways, many, many, many such movies. He returns now with The Holdovers. It stars Paul Giamatti as Mr. Hunnam, a sad sack misanthrope whose job is haranguing rich kids in a New England prep school under the alibi of teaching them history. By reasons of geography or maybe emotional geography, going home for Christmas is impossible for a small handful of the boys, and one unlucky teacher every year pulls the short straw. This year, the duty falls to Mr. Hanum. His disciplinary zeal focuses in on one boy, in particular Angus, played by Dominic Sessa. The two bicker and snipe, but they're each in a way orphans leading the viewer to wonder in what way will these two eventually adopt one another. In the clip, we're going to hear Giamatti as Hanum talking to Angus, played by Dominic Sessa. Let's listen.
0: No wonder you're afraid of women. I am not
1: afraid of women. Jesus, sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. It's,
0: Dr. Gertler
1: says I don't always give consideration to my audience. Ah, and who is Dr. Gertler?
0: My shrink.
2: Has Dr. Gertler ever tried
0: a good swift kick in the ass? Okay. All right. Now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something negative about you. Sure. Just one thing. Just one.
2: Dana, let me start with you. I cannot remember whether you are a painhead or not, what your history is with this director. Why don't you fill us in there and then give us a taste of what you thought of it?
3: I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, as a critic, I hate to call myself a, you know, unabashed head of any director, but I do love a good Alexander Payne film. There are a few reservations that I have about his filmography, mainly more recent ones. But, you know, I love Citizen Ruth and Election and Sideways. And so I and Nebraska is one of my favorite movies of, you know, the past 10 years, probably. So I was very excited for this movie. And it scratches a different itch than some of the movies that I just mentioned. I think this is maybe the most cuddly Alexander Payne movie. He is deliberately going for a a very retro, nostalgia is not quite the word, because I think this movie feels modern too in its themes and its subject matter, but the look of it, and the sound of it, and the feel of it, and the soundtrack, and the 35mm cinematography is all very retro 1970s, right down to you know, it has one of those yellow Roman numerals that appears at the bottom of the screen at the beginning, sort of 70s style to mark the year. I think Ryan Johnson's series Poker Face uses that same Roman numeral nostalgia, but anyway, it, it scratches all those itches kind of aesthetically speaking, but I also thought it was just very successful at what it tries to do, which is modest. It's like a holiday comedy that wants to make you laugh, introduce some characters and put them through some adventures together. And, you know, in the end have something change in their world. It's almost like it was made in a screenplay lab as a feel good Christmas movie for, you know, people who have a dark sense of humor. And so I have a feeling that both of you are going to say bad things about this movie because of that. But I loved it for precisely that reason. <laughs> oh I was so <laughs> grateful that it made me laugh, like really laugh loudly in the movie theater so that people turned around, <laughs> though they were laughing too, at Paul Giamatti's incredible incredible way with a put down. Like it's just been so long since we saw Paul Giamatti in a lead movie role. I know he's had a big role in that show, Billions, but he hasn't really dominated a movie and not just been a, a character actor in one for a long time. And he hasn't worked with Payne since Sideways. And I think it was 2004. So um, to me, this was just sort of like old home week in the theaters. And I emailed my family and a bunch of friends immediately after seeing a press screening saying, when this movie opens, you've got to go see it. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty much all in. I have a couple questions and reservations about it that I'll save for my next round of of ranting. But But what did you two think?
4: I loved it. I loved it. I really loved it. I think I'm pain-susceptible as well. It's very sweet. It's not a kind of movie that people make. Unless you are in Alexander Payne, I don't think you get to make this kind of movie, but it's sweet and it's old-fashioned and it's I loved your line in your review, Dana, that the best Christmas movies understand how sad Christmas is. (laughs) It's like a hard time emotionally for people.
3: Yeah, this is a Christmas movie that almost negs on Christmas. And yet in the end, it feels very, very cozy yuletide, (laughs) you know, in a strange way.
4: Yeah. I forget if it was your review or another one that, that says it's basically a Scrooge story, which it totally is. I feel like often movies highlight the dissonance of Christmas and the holidays And the feeling of like maladjustment that they can create in people by giving us a an odd fish at a cozy gathering, and just all of these odd fishes in this amazing set of this privileged prep school tableau. It's just great. It's original and interesting. And I thought the performances were all wonderful. Steve, what did you make of it? I was struck by you know I attended a prep school, and we have these buildings, some of which I surely passed in going to various track meets because it was filmed in a host of Massachusetts boarding schools that are different than the one I went to. Anyway, it had a familiarity to me as someone who went to one of those schools in the 80s and 90s. And I wonder what you made of it as someone who went to one of those schools for a little bit, not quite in this era, but a little closer to it. I thought the atmospherics to someone like me
2: were very evocative and effective in that regard. I also, as someone who grew up as a budding cinephile in the era where movies looked exactly like this, that old 1970s film stock and the kind of the sound of a needle in the groove of a vinyl record, but not yet playing the song, that kind of crackle and pop of dust in the groove. And um, all of that works on me like a kind of drug. And in that sense, I really loved it. I thought his really disciplined commitment to something more than gimmicky nostalgia was where it paid off which is that all of its effects are achieved cumulatively he never went for a huge moment or a huge laugh at any point in the film and the idea was to do what movies in theory used to do which was you know make them a holistic thing to tell a story and then the emotional payout can come in very small moments later in the picture when you really have grown to know these people and the stakes seem really deep. In that sense, I, I loved the movie. I had one commanding problem with it. I'm interested to hear whether this resonates with either one of you because it comes from sort of the same first-person experience that makes the familiarity of it so cozy uh, and seductive to me, which is that actually I found the character of Hanum, Paul Giamatti's like, pedantic history teacher bore overwritten in a way that Hollywood tends to overwrite these characters. Assume This takes place in 1970, assuming that he's in his forties or fifties, he's born in the twenties or thirties. He's a member of the greatest generation. Funnily enough, the screenwriter has said it's based on a real person, his own uncle who knew six or seven languages had been like, I don't know if he was in the OSS or, I mean, he had been a man of the world who's, you know, in addition to being like a linguist and a brilliant, person was worldly and lovable in some deep sense, but absolutely a relic. And the much more interesting to me movie and harder story to tell is what is it about to have the whole world around you shrink so that you go from being one of its central players and a kind of hero to a big fish in a tiny pond. And maybe that turns you into something of a self-important pedantic bore with a vengeful streak against these rich kids who helicopter in and out of the campus. But that to me was a more interesting story than this rather broadly written sort of insult comic who I never took to him as a as a real person, frankly, in some sense. And I felt that, oddly enough, for as much as I love Giamatti, Dana, that led to a performance that I found slightly shticky.
3: Wow, maybe I just really am a sucker for Giamatti shtick. <laughs> but I, I say this in my review, I think that his character reveals a bunch of surprising layers as the movie goes on, especially as you learn about his past, right? Because his character is supposed to have attended the same boarding school. There's some implication that he was sort of, you know, from a a, a less exclusive social class than other kids at the school and that he was kind of an autodidact who got very far by virtue of his brains, but was never liked, was not liked as a high schooler, is now completely des- despised as a teacher at the same high school. So I did have a sense that he was somebody who had gone through a life journey. It wasn't from being important to not being important, but rather from sort of fighting his way out of a difficult situation only to find himself kind of ironically trapped in the same place forever. But I'm curious, too, what you both thought of Divine Joy Randolph's character, who we haven't talked about yet, who's the third member of this, you know, this tripod, this triumvirate that makes up the movie and who I think is what sort of makes the movie, places the movie in the modern age and keeps it from being just a retread of, you know, the paper chase or one of those 70s pedagogical classics that it echoes.
4: I mean, her performance is incredible. She plays Mary, the school's cook, who is also spending Christmas at the school because it's her first Christmas since her son, also a graduate, died in Vietnam. And. And she's cooking for them and then eventually becomes kind of part of the the hang squad as the movie unfolds. You know, it's interesting that this film is so devoted to being made exactly as it would have been made in the 70s. Because the version of it that would have been made in the 70s might not have made her an equal part in quite the same way. Like it's a little, you know, somebody is conveniently racist at the beginning. And one of our first glimmers that the Hanum character is not entirely worthless is that he stands up against the racism. And then a lot of the racism just kind of conveniently disappears for the rest of the movie, which I don't think was probably the experience of being in a prep school environment in the 1970s, even over the holidays with only two people there. So it felt a little bit less grounded than some of the other hyper-realism in a way that I wondered if it was a little cheap or convenient. like that was the that was my reservation about the movie. On the other hand, I think the performances move you past those or moved me past those reservations pretty swiftly because they do develop these relationships and they do each share their own griefs and kind of move through them, yes, in a way that is tidy and could be easily be studied in a screenwriting class, but somehow, across all of their performances, I found really moving.
3: Yeah, I hear you, Julia. And I say in my review that I wish we had a little bit more of her character, of Mary, Divine Joy Randolph's character, in the last act. Although I also appreciated, as Wesley Morris wrote in his review of the movie, that she's sort of given her privacy at a, at a, at a very painful moment for her um, in the movie. And especially, I would say, in a, in a late scene where Paul Giamatti's character and Divine Joy Randolphs have this late night conversation in the TV room, there's a moment that the dynamic between them is flipped in an interesting way, where sort of some of his expectations of her are overturned. And uh, And after that, I felt like the movie really won me over, that she was fully out of the category of the sort of sassy black secondary character and was, although I wish she had more screen time, was a really fully rounded character. Anyway, I would say you may have slight niggles with this or that about the movie, but This is such a great choice for family viewing, and it happens to be open over a holiday weekend. I would totally send people to the theater to watch this with multiple generations of their family.
2: Yeah, and to be clear, so would I. Okay, it's The Holdovers. stars Paul Giamatti. It's from the director Alexander Payne. It's in theaters now. Go check it out. All right, let's move on.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: All right. Well, Dwight Garner is a book critic for the New York Times, a job at which he's performed a kind of miracle. He's made readers want to read his reviews for him, but without being a show-off. That is very hard to do, I'm here to tell you. Whether it's a rave, a pan, a hatchet job, or anything in between, sentence after sentence of his carries so much delight. He's proven again and again, you can be brief, deep, deep, and Light, and now he's written a memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen, on eating, reading, reading about eating, and eating while reading, is Garner at Length. And Garner at Length, I'm here to tell you, is equally delightful. Uh, it's filled with the same sly, sneaky wit and profundity as his uh, daily paper criticism. Dwight, welcome to the podcast. God, thank you for that, Steve. And it's great to be here. It's so heartfelt. Uh, it's it's such a fun book, and it's fun to talk to you always. This is a, a memoir, and eating and reading came about by a process of self discovery. You you started with Cool Whip and Robert Parker, and you evolved into a you know serious uh, reader and eater but not at all self-serious. Dwight, if you have a copy of the book handy, you know it's like trying to describe to someone who's never had it what a pineapple tastes like or a marshmallow or a, you know, a beef bourguignon or something. Like, you actually just have to put it in your mouth. So will you just read the delightful first paragraph
1: from your memoir for us? Well, I feel like a chef who, who says, here's one I made earlier. Yes, I do have my book here, Steve. <laughs> yeah, my book starts this way. When I was young growing up in West Virginia, and then in Southwest Florida. I was a soft kid, inclined toward en bon pont, husky in the department store lingo, a brown-eyed boy with chafing thighs, because I liked to eat while I read. And reader, I read whatever was handy. George Orwell described his childhood self as having a, quote, large, rather fat face with big jowls, a bit like a hamster. This was my look too, so much so that my friends presented me with a hamster as a joke gift. I regret to inform you that I named it Holden after J.D. Salinger's hero. Holden ate lettuce and, probably despairing of his diet, staggered backwards theatrically on his hind legs one day and croaked like Lee Marvin in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> I mean, it's just—it's just so good.
3: <laughs> How and could you a, not read the next paragraph?
2: <laughs> I know, and it's like it's a sustained performance of that goodness. But let's let's dig into some specifics. I mean. You Know people might ask you or someone like you, how did you get there growing up in a house largely without books or serious reading going on? But that's you, it wasn't in spite of, it was because of you wanted to find out how to be in the world because you didn't know up front. Uh, so, talk about where you're from and uh, how you found your way to high literacy.
1: <laughs> you know, as a writer of the book, I was born in West Virginia, my grandfather was a coal miner, my father went to law school at West Virginia University, and, you know, we were a middle-class family. I, I had tennis lessons and orthodonture, you know, but um, there weren't a lot of books in the house. There wasn't much culture, and I started reading, and I just kept reading. And one of the reasons I read is that I just, out of pure curiosity, out of observation greed is a phrase I use in the book, I wanted to know more about what the world was like outside of my little suburb, and I want, a lot of it was wanting to know about food.
3: Dwight, what you just described about your childhood is was one of many moments reading your book that I, I realized that maybe part of why I've always vibed so hard with your book reviews is that we share many elements of our past and also of our taste in food. But uh, my grandfather was also from West Virginia. My father grew up there And my grandfather also worked in a coal mine, not as a miner, but as he helped design equipment to get the coal out of the mine. He also said warsh, as you mentioned your grandfather pronouncing (laughs) that word. And uh, and so your description of sort of the food culture of... You know, sort of working class West Virginia was something that I really recognized and related to. But then there were so many moments that, you know, little food journeys that you described also rhymed with ones that I had taken. Like, I think I've endorsed on this show before Marie Sharp's hot sauce, which you mentioned (laughs) is your favorite hot sauce. I think it has actually been an endorsement of this late Culture Gap Fest. And Julia knows this very well. There's a a snack that I picked up from an Iris Murdoch book, The Sea, which is a book that you talk about uh, as having inspired a different snack. You talk about going in search of oranges, certain oranges that the obsessive narrator of that novel mentions in his book. And I like to spread toast with butter and then press fresh herbs into the butter, which is something that Mm. the obsessive narrator of that book talks about. (laughs) So is this going to become a question? I guess I was going to ask you about snacks inspired by by books and to what extent, you know, that brought this book about. And, you know, maybe to suggest a couple on air to our listeners, something that you would never have thought of eating if somebody in a book hadn't eaten it first.
1: Oh, God, it's such a good question. You know, maybe like you, it sounds like I'm very suggestible. You know, if I'm reading a novel and someone has a great snack in it or a great meal, I kind of want to go make it that night, you know, or if not that night, I'll take a picture of it with my phone and you know, going back to my phone later, I'll find this thing that I've taken a photograph of this snack or this recipe. And so, yeah, I, you know, I love finding food in novels when it's well done. And I love finding recipe ideas. And, you know, what a great thing. What a great pleasure to combine. I'm trying to think now of things that I've learned about through novels that, that I do food wise. I mean, Iris Murdoch, you're right, is sort of one of the great people. Iris Murdoch said one of my favorite quotes, actually, the quote that describes this book more than anything else is something like she writes in The Sea the Sea, the secret to a happy life is a series of continuous small treats, you know? Mm. And <laughs> one of the great things about eating is that, you know, this doesn't have to be fancy food. It's just Mary McCarthy in my book uh, describes her method of eating peaches. Her father taught her and they would take, slice the peach and dip every slice into a bit of sugar. And that was his method and she loved it. And she writes, it wasn't, the the method wasn't so important as the way he insisted on turning every little moment into sort of a, a nice a nice treat, a nice moment. Like he just recognized that it was great at the time.
4: Wait, I was struck reading this book how much it reminded me of your last book, Garner's Quotations, which put on display your magpie reading capabilities and helped me understand why it is that your reviews are so fun to read because it helps demonstrate the kind of reader you are. And although this is a memoir and about eating... It is, as the subtitle says, also about reading. And I was curious about how you came to that form. Like, did you know when you set out to write this book that it was going to weave in so much of your observation, greed, reading? Was that the intent from the beginning or did all of that, all of those deftly plucked phrases and memories kind of sneak their way
1: in? No, that's a good question because I I was really aware early on that my life has not been interesting enough to, you know, my memoir would not be that interesting. Not that much has happened to me, you know, I I probably can make it interesting to a degree, but I realized this was my chance to talk about my life a bit and to walk through it in terms of food. And I'm just one of those people who thinks in quotations. I mean, you could name any food out there and I could probably tell you what three or four writers thought about it. And I just have a, my mind works that way for some weird reason. And I've read a lot of books that talk about literature and food, and I like them, but I just felt there was this wildness untouched. Everyone talks about the same few scenes all the time, you know, out of Virginia Woolf or, you know, um, some other novels. And I just knew that I had this knowledge from all kinds of other writers that was great, and I wanted to talk about it, and this was my chance. And so I just leapt at the opportunity to write this book, and I'm really happy that I was able to do it. Wait,
4: so like all of those thoughts and observations from writers across history about sardines are just floating around in your head? You don't have some like secret card file full of notebook, like index
1: cards? (laughs) I have a two-part answer. Yes, they do float around in my head, but also I do keep a commonplace book. And as your listeners surely know, a commonplace book is where writers throughout time have written down their favorite passages from novels and other kinds of books. And I've kept one since I was 14. This was, I wrote about this in the introduction to my quotations book. And every time I read a novel, if there's some great line in it, I write it down. And I've done this, you know, since I was really young and my Commonplace book is now enormous. And so when I went to write this book, I did have a large file on my favorite food commentary over time, and I rated it in a big way for this book, no doubt. But having said that, I do have a lot of it on tap. You know, I do have a lot of it available to me without looking it up, but I did look it up also.
2: Dwight, there's something just essentially generous about the way you write as a critic, which is very hard to sustain as a critic. And it makes one think abundantly of what one loves, right? It, it doesn't make you relish your distaste to read you even when you don't especially like something. And I thought of that many examples of eating in books that stay with you forever. The one off the top of my head was an American pastoral where the daughter of the Swede is on the run and she's starving and she bites into a, it's a BLT. And the the. The phenomenological richness of that description just shows you how hungry and desperate that character is, and you can taste it at that moment. Uh, Many such examples. Relatedly, I'm curious about the palate problem, right? The other Robert Parker, the wine critic, would often talk about kind of blowing out his palate, especially on all of these, you know, super high alcohol wines. And how are you going to distinguish between the 99th wine that you're tasting and the 100th? Gluttony leads to satiety, leads to a dead palate. And as you say, you're often, you often find yourself under a landslide of books. And similarly, you love to eat and do it copiously. How do you stay alive
1: to books and food? Oh, God, it's such a good question. Well, you know, with food, you only have three meals a day, right? And your appetites keep coming. And so, you know, I'm hungry. And, you know, I find that I'm always looking forward to my next meal. In terms of books, God, it's so true. And with books, if you're a professional critic, you look for reasons not to talk about them. You know, I sit around all day with a big pile of new books. And I, I look for reasons because I I can only do four a month. And I probably get, I don't know, 200 in my mailbox a month and uh, or more than that. And so you look for reasons to put them down. You open it up and I flip around and look – and I look for something to charm me. I look for a reason to review it. But I'm also looking like I can skip this one. But not becoming dulled. I don't know. I just love what I do so much. I feel so lucky to have this job. And you guys have have the same kind of jobs where – Every day I'm confronting a new topic, a new voice, something new to chew on and talk about. And, you know, those kind of jobs are, are rare in American life. As someone said, if you're in high school and go to the jobs fair, there's no table for like literary criticism, like, you know, to sign up to have this be your profession. And I just feel lucky to do it.
4: <laughs> I love that observation and we will briefly note, at risk of stitching in a kid anecdote, that my son pointed out that I just watch stuff and talk about it and tried to use that as an argument that he should be a video game critic when he grows up and be allowed to play unlimited video <laughs> games to so cultivate good. his critical yep, palette. Exactly. <laughs> he did not win the argument.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard plenty of child put-downs along the lines of all you have to do for work is watch movies. So (laughs) I guess I it pretty good. But I have to say in in response, I completely agree with Steve that I think joy is one of the critical elements of of this book and of your writing in general, but I am also so grateful when you deliver a deadly pan of a book that I don't want to read but desperately want to know about. I still think about and laugh your review of Jared Kushner's (laughs) memoir. I remember sending that link to everyone I knew. It was so full of laugh lines. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, I've found that readers really, especially readers of book reviews, love The Pan. And the reason is, I think, well, A, they're kind of fun, of course. But B, book talk in America has become very much like happy talk. And negative reviews are, are rare now. And there are fewer book reviews. And so I think readers are always feel like they're being sold a bill of goods. They read this glowing review and go buy the book, and it's, it's a piece of crap. And I think that happens to a lot of people. And so when they see a negative review like thank god this is not another rave and i can i can skip this book you know and um i think people feel like they're finally getting straight talk sometimes if someone pans a book
2: okay Dwight i have to ask just the gooniest question one desert island food paired with one desert island author
1: go oh, give me a sec, give me a sec, give me a sec, give me a sec. I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out.
3: Um, um. It's those questions that make you dumber the minute they're asked. Like, favorite movie? I'm not familiar with the concept of movie. Uh,
2: I, thank okay. you, Dana. Let's leave all that in, by hey the God. way. <laughs>
1: No, it's, it's so true. Whenever I asked me, ask me what to read, I never have an answer. Uh, I would say I want to be in Rome with Ralph Ellison in the 1950s. He was there for a year or so writing, and he couldn't find sort of southern food. He couldn't find the things he loved. Um, and he went out walking all over Rome in search of pig's feet. And he couldn't find them or the right brine he needed to make them. And I want to be there with Ralph on the search for pig's feet in Rome in 1950, whatever it was.
2: See, this is a lesson— Dana, to all aspiring hosts, sometimes the dumbest questions lead to the (laughs) most intelligent (laughs) answers. The upstairs delicatessen on eating, reading, reading about eating, and eating while reading is by Dwight Garner, a very esteemed friend of this program, of VFOP. Dwight, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is an absolute delight. What a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Right now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens what uh, what do you have
3: All right. Well, in our segment on the holdovers, I recommended that people over the holiday weekend, if they're looking for some family viewing, go watch that movie in the theater. I stand behind that. But if you want to do some home viewing over the holidays, as who doesn't, I happened to discover a show on Netflix over the weekend that, in a rare occurrence, all three members of my family wanted to watch, not necessarily at the same time. So it was sort of constantly flowing through my house all weekend. I still haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen bits of the whole thing. And I can say that while not being perfect, it will make for excellent family watching. It's called Life on Our Planet. It's a nature show or a sort of paleo anthropology show, a history of the planet show on Netflix. It's narrated by Morgan Freeman. Who better to sonorously tell you of your planet's past than Morgan Freeman? It's basically a history of Earth since intracellular life first began. So obviously each episode is going to be covering millions and millions of years of time, if not hundreds of millions of years. And so I would not say that it is the deepest scientific show. I'm pretty sure the science in it is all sound. I'm certainly learning a lot as I watch it. An interesting element that it has that takes a while to get used to is that it uses a lot of CGI recreation of prehistoric times, right? Because how else are you going to see, I don't know, two early mammals locking horns in the Triassic era unless you recreate them digitally. So you kind of have to get used to the fact that it goes in between present-day nature photography that looks so incredible, it could be CGI, and then, you know, fake cinematography of the past that actually is CGI. And that toggling is sometimes a little weird, but it is more than worth it once you get used to it. It's really well-scripted, and there are so many funny-looking creatures that you never knew existed that I guarantee members of your family will be deciding who is most like which (laughs) prehistoric weird bird with giant feet flying through canyons. is just visually fun to watch. Julia, I think your boys would really dig it if they have had, you know, dinosaur love in their past. And you learn a ton about early mammals and early plants and non-dinosaur creatures too.
2: Oh, that's great. Julia, what do you have?
4: Well, since we've all agreed we can't get enough Nathan Fielder, I do want to endorse this hilarious bit that he and Emma Stone did promoting the curse on Jimmy Kimmel, did either of you guys see this?
3: No. It merits
4: watching. But the whole bit is essentially a Nathan Fielder sketch in which I guess the New York Times critic reviewing the show praised Emma Stone's performance but critiqued Nathan Fielder's and said he was very stiff. And so he shows up pretending to be like an incredibly loose, cool actor (laughs) to prove that the review is wrong and just won't let the bit drop. And the whole thing is just good. It's just funny. And I mean, probably you would hate it, Steve, but
3: (laughs) that sounds like the perfect acting challenge for Nathan Fielder, right? I mean, since, since I was praising his performance, but his performance is essentially to be his stiff self. I want to see him acting like cool actor guy.
4: So he's, he comes out in like this ludicrous outfit and like huge pants and these teeny tiny mirrored glasses. And, um, is like sitting in a chair in this like hipster relaxed way. But then under it, you can feel the coiled nerdery radiating through. But then even that is a performance of the nerd pretending to be (laughs) like just the layers. It's extremely Nathan Fielderian. And then it's funny to see Emma Stone's non-acted self or kind of like a game expressive, you know, promoting my project self kind of going along for the ride and playing a, a quite game second fiddle to this absurd bit. Anyway, so often a a late night performance is totally forgettable and this one is essentially its own little show.
2: You're right, Julia. I hate it already. All right. So I'm endorsing this week an essay by the extraordinary Vivian Gornick in the New York Review of Books. It's called Camus on Tour and it's about Camus. uh, Some publishing house is just published his reflections on America when he came here on essentially book tour. And the the essay just begins with this kind of, Dana, you have to read this essay if you haven't already, with a tour de force that begins with Nothing in a professional writer's life more resembles the life of a traveling salesman than the literary book tour. The superficial difference between writers on tour and salesmen on the road is that writers are encouraged to imagine themselves prize personae whose pitch is eagerly awaited by the anonymous crowd, whereas salesmen know themselves to be an intrusion, albeit one with an edge, while both are beggars at the gate. I love it. And it goes on from there. And it just, it just, Fabian Gornick is 88. And at the absolute top of her game, it's such a wonderfully deft and funny recounting of the incongruity of Camus in America. And let me just briefly read another very funny part. Most of his evaluations on his trip are superficial or banal or laughably snotty. Here's Camus still in the boat, his ship just coming into New York. A tremendous sight despite, or this is Camus now, a tremendous sight despite or because of the fog, order, power, economic strength, they're all here the heart trembles before so much remarkable inhumanity. Then Gornick comes in and says, grudgingly, he adds, but I know people can change their mind. He, however, will not. So anyway, it's just deft and an encouragement to those of us laboring in the vineyards of criticism that we might yet get it right, even if it happens finally in our 70s or 80s. It's Vivian Gornick. It's in the New York Review of Books, and the essay is called Camus on Tour. Julia, thank you so much.
3: Thanks,
4: Steve.
2: Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.